While you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, we'll have a word of prayer. Our Father, we come now to open your word and to be delighted by the truths that you have for us. As believers in Christ, your truths are delightful. For those who do not know Christ, they are either hopeful or terrifying, depending on one's response to your word. This day, Lord, we ask for humble hearts to receive the truth that you have for us. Change us, make us more like Christ, make us more heavenly minded by the glorious power in your word. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. In 1979, and some of you are saying, oh, that's my time. The world-famous music group ACDC released their hit song, Highway to Hell. It speaks of doing everything in this life for my own pleasure, doing whatever I like, because the end of this highway is a party in hell with all my friends. It says there are no stop signs, there's no speed limit, and the chorus repeats over and over and over again, I'm on the highway to hell And the song has even a defiant, minor key, metallic feel to it. Well, Jesus describes the actual highway to hell. Matthew 7.13, he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way, Greek word for road or highway, is broad. That leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. But unlike the deceptively fun and enjoyable highway to hell of ACDC fame, with no stop signs, no speed limit, Matthew 7 actually contains numerous warning signs on the real highway to hell, eternal punishment away from the presence of God to bless. This final section in the Sermon on the Mount takes a turn toward the eternally serious and begins the approach to the stunning end of this sermon, which Jesus ends with a a note of warning. And in keeping with many of the themes present in these concluding sections of the sermon, we're going to look at these warning signs on hell's highway, which Jesus gives in this section. And so we'll do this over the next few weeks. Today I'd like to examine the warning sign of self-righteousness. The warning sign of self-righteousness. We'll consider Matthew 7, 1 through 6, which reads, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you measure, it will be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. The nearly universal interpretation of this section is that this is a warning and a command to followers of Christ to those who have placed their faith in the Lord for salvation from sin. And there are some valuable and important lessons in this text for believers. 
In verse 1, Jesus gives the command to not judge, to not pass judgment with the warning in verse 2 that if you're judgmental, that same standard of perfection will be applied to you. I do have to say that this is probably the favorite Bible verse of the unbeliever because it justifies situational morality that whatever's right to me is generally right and you have no right to condemn it, which of course is its own form of passing judgment, right? Because I could just as easily say, well, it's right to me to pass judgment on you for passing judgment on me. But leaving behind that obvious misuse of the text by the lost, we aren't to judge others by a self-styled standard. Assigning someone as being worthy of the final judgment of God. That is not our purview, it's not our place. Paul said in Romans 14.4, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. We're also reminded in Ephesians 4.31 to let all bitterness and anger and wrath be put from us. Wrath is the judgment that someone is worthy of the wrath of God. Now, the obvious flaw in that is that we're all worthy of the wrath of God. It's only God's place to render the final assessment of someone's soul. To place yourself in the position of viewing someone as completely incapable of receiving the mercy of God, it puts you in danger of thinking yourself above criticism and perhaps even playing God. That is potentially the habitually gossipy person, the the tail-bearing person, the critical person who is operating under the illusion of somehow being superior to those that are under their analysis. This is a spiritually very dangerous place to be it's the very opposite of Paul's command in Philippians 2, 3, to regard one another as more important than yourselves. And then, of, of course, there's the classic illustration Jesus gives of the, the speck and the log or the plank or the beam that we're not to point out the speck in someone else's life when there's a log, a plank, a beam stuck in our own eye. And so the listener is told, matter-of-factly, take the log out of your own eye, then you can worry about helping someone else. That we're to be in a state of confessed sin, of humility before the Lord, awareness of sin prior to pointing out sin in another. And we would affirm that confronting another about sin is to be done certainly in a spirit of humility, a spirit of gentleness. Galatians 6.1, the Apostle Paul says, Brother, if, even if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each of you looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. The pointing out of sin is to be done in a spirit of genuine love and kindness, care, devotion. Romans 12, 9, Paul says, Let love be without hypocrisy by abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good. 2 Corinthians 6, 6, Paul says we're to exhibit unhypocritical love. Same Greek word as without hypocrisy in Romans 12. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, that we're to have a love of the brothers without hypocrisy, fervently loving one another, from the heart, meaning that to point out sin in someone else's life without genuine love for him, this is antithetical to the gospel. It's the opposite of our brotherhood as believers in Christ. And in fact, in looking at the admonition in verse 1 to not judge and comparing that to the fact that in verse 6, Jesus tells us to judge some as dogs and pigs, spiritually speaking, it's clear that on the one hand, we're not to have a spiritually condescending attitude 
And on the other hand, we're to wisely have spiritual discernment as well, that the two go hand in hand. These are all worthy lessons. They're all worthy of remembrance. But all the applications to Christians that I just gave you were drawn from other texts in the New Testament. Because there's some bothersome details in Matthew 7, 1 through 6. When we try to immediately apply this to the Christian, just a surface scan would reveal some bothersome details. Verse 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Nearly every scholar I read on this matter aimed this text primarily at the Christian, and yet they all mention the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes who were listening to this sermon, by the way, and it finds its way into the assessment of this text as well. But that group of self-righteous unbelievers cannot be placed in the same category as followers of Christ. Verse 2, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? This has a tone of finality to it. I'm sorry, verse 2, with what judgment do you judge? You will be judged. That's final. This is, this is the end. This doesn't have the feel of loving fatherly discipline from the Lord. It has the feel of an eye for an eye. It has the feel of divine judgment. One scholar who applies this to the believer, that whatever you do will be done to you, used two examples. He first of all used the example of Haman building a gallows upon which to hang the good man Mordecai, but God worked it out for Haman to be hanged on his own gallows, Esther 7. And he used the example of King Adonai Bezek, who had cut off the thumbs and big toes of 70 other kings and himself was eventually captured, had his own thumbs and own big toes cut off, Judges 1. But those men were pagan God-haters. Haman, a wicked Persian official trying to massacre all Jews. Adonai Bezek, a, a vicious and wicked Canaanite king. That is an inappropriate comparison. Verse 3, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, not noticing the log in your own? One commentator assesses this issue like this. Quote, consequently it denies and opposes the gospel because the gospel proclaims man's sinfulness and lostness even as it proclaims God's mercy and grace. You can't say this is aimed at the Christian as one who denies and opposes the gospel. Verse 4 is troubling to us. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye. Behold, the log is in your own eye. This is clearly exaggeration, hyperbole, but very often it's characterized as humorous. I find no humor here. This is shocking. This is often characterized as a comparison between a small sin problem and a large sin problem. For example, one scholar whom I admire greatly, he writes this, that Jesus, quote, pictures a person who fixes his gaze on something quite unimportant in someone else and who does not know this what is much more significant in himself. But speck doesn't mean insignificant, doesn't mean unimportant. Speck is a reasonable translation, but it's the least invasive of all possible translations. It can also be translated splinter, stick, or twig. You ever had a speck in your eye? It's not insignificant. It stops everything you're doing. The speck versus the log is not insignificant sin versus significant sin. No, it's 
big blinding sin versus massive, huge blinding sin. They both blind you. Verse 6 is disturbing. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Some scholars are puzzled by this and they say that this sentence has nothing to do with what comes before and nothing to do with what comes after it. And still others, even when taking verses 1 through 5 as completely speaking of lessons to Christians, they change their tune very quickly at verse 6, almost treating it as just sort of loosely connected. It's, it's not loosely connected. There's a clear change of subject in verse 7. Therefore, it must be connected to verses 1 through 5. Jesus didn't just drop random sayings here and there. He was an outstanding, literally perfect public speaker. He didn't just say, you know, let me go off here. It has nothing to do with what I was just talking about. He never does that. Everything he says is placed in a context. And so there's some concerning elements to this text when trying to apply it exclusively to the saved person, to the one who is in Christ. Now, to comfort you, and if I'm, if I'm destroying your view of this text, you won't be any worse for the wear if you continue to regard this as a warning and teaching to the regenerate believer in Christ. Jesus was sufficiently ambiguous here that this text is a splash of reality on every listener, right? But I think there are larger and more eternal issues at stake here than the sanctified life of the believer in Christ because this text is replete with warnings to the self-righteous. To the one Jesus refers to elsewhere as the one who thinks he has no need of forgiveness, no need of the great physician. I'd like to point out to you six warnings in this text that really shout with grave urgency to the person who is smug in his self-righteousness, seeing only goodness in himself and looking down on all others. The first warning I'll call the shift in tone. The shift in tone. The last 10 verses of chapter 6 contain some of the greatest comforts ever preached by the Lord Jesus. Do not be anxious about your life. Look at the birds of the air which your heavenly Father feeds. Consider the lilies of the field which your heavenly Father clothes. Do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or drink or wear? Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And then the climactic high point comes when When Jesus exhorts the believer in Christ to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. He's speaking to those who yearn, who desire to be part of the kingdom of Christ. These are clear helps to those who claim God as their father. But the tone changes drastically at chapter 7 verse 1. To basically ask the question, are you part of the kingdom? It goes from comfort to those who are kingdom citizens to asking the question, are you even part of the kingdom? Jesus goes from saying to kingdom citizens, do not be anxious in verse 34 to now causing great anxiety. You will be judged in the same way you judge others. I don't know if more anxiety provoking words have ever been spoken. He makes a bold pronouncement of a sin pattern that's happening regularly, happening to a great degree. Verse 3, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Verse 5 indicates he's speaking to people currently with the metaphorical log in the eye. 
In chapter 6, he's telling those who have some faith to have more faith. Chapter 7 makes no allowance for that. Jesus is speaking to the religious elite who consider themselves the final court of religious judgment and by doing so, they're playing God. This is a mixed audience that he's speaking to. There's a second warning I'll call the increase in alarm. The increase in alarm. Beginning in verse 1, a tension begins to build. In chapter 7, from this point forward all the way to the end of the sermon, if I might put it this way, it's an ever more deafening alarm that's going off, getting louder and getting louder. In verses 7 through 11, Jesus gives the example of the perfect love of the Heavenly Father who gives good things to all who follow after Him. In verse 12, He gives the ethic of doing to others what you would wish them to do to you. This is a reflection of the perfect love of the Father. But it isn't sustainable as a lifestyle for the unbeliever. It is a warning that if you are loving others, if you are doing to others what you would have them do to you, that is indicative of salvation. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus warns that the road to eternal life is narrow. Few find it, while the road to destruction is wide and easy, and many travel that road. He's warning against an easy believism gospel. In verses 15 through 20, Jesus warns against false teachers who are ravenous wolves. In verses 21 through 23, Jesus warns of false believers in the church, even those who claim to have done great things in Jesus' name. And then, then, Jesus gives the warning that if you do not listen to him, if you do not heed his words and build the house of your eternal destiny on his words, verse 26 And everyone hearing these words of mine and not doing them may be compared to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. And that's the end. That's the end. There's no gentle invitation. There's no softening of the sharp edges. If Jesus preached that sermon in a preaching lab in most seminaries, he would have received a C- minus at best. What a terrible ending. There's no false assurance. There's no warmth. There's no smile at the end. No, this is what you might call today in the sermon version of a mic drop. You're just done. Jesus warns against lovelessness, against an easy gospel, against false teachers, against false Christians, and the, the climactic portion against ignoring him. Ignore my words and your house will fall. It's a third warning. The third warning we'll call the type of judgment. The type of judgment. Jesus said, without exceptions and without explanatory comments, do not judge. Do not judge. Nearly every outstanding commentator on Matthew 7 is rightly quick to mention the fact that for the Christian, we are called to judge. There are certain times this cannot be a carte blanche across the board command to never judge as a Christian. Jesus commanded in Matthew 18 that if a person is in unrepentant sin and refuses, attempts to call him to repent, he's to be put out of the church. He's to be regarded as an unbeliever because true believers yearn to repent. Paul commanded in 1 Corinthians 5 to clean out the old leaven. In verse 7, by delivering the unrepentant person who is called himself a Christian 
deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What is that? That's hope of salvation because the person has shown himself to be an unbeliever. That is judging. In the same chapter, Paul claims that the one who calls himself a brother, who, who claims salvation in Christ, Paul explains that this person who is unrepentantly and unashamedly, continually prideful in sin patterns, that it is, quote, those inside the church whom you are to, guess what word, judge. Peter asserted in 1 Peter 4, 17, it is time for what? Judgment to begin in the household of God. Now, I bring that up because each of those situations, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Peter 4, each of those are explained with wisdom, with care, with discernment, in other words, with judgment. But there's a reason that Matthew 7, 1 is the favorite verse of the unbeliever. Because they rightly take it as a no-exception boundary. Why? The self-righteous person, the person who's not only lost and without Christ, but also believes he has no need of Christ, no need of forgiveness, the person who has a belief in his own superiority, he has no rights to classify another person as worthy of the eternal judgment of God. No exceptions. No exceptions. We meet people like this in Scripture. John 9 has a clear example of what this person is like. Jesus has healed a blind man, a man who has been born, he was was born blind. The man is brought before the Pharisees who interrogated him about the healing because it happened on the Sabbath, which Jesus did on purpose, by the way. There, There was division among the Pharisees as they discussed this because some were saying Jesus can't be from God because he healed on the Sabbath, which wasn't illegal, by the way. And others said he must be from God. He can't be sinful because he healed. They called the man back a second time and they pressured him to call Jesus a sinner. They told him, we don't know where Jesus is from, so you should call him a sinner. And when they said, we don't know where Jesus is from, the man was flabbergasted and he humiliates the Pharisees with his sound theology. The man answered and said to them, well, here's a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, and he opened my eyes. That's the New Testament version of, er. (laughs) He goes on, we know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Oh, he just schooled them. They answered and said to him, You were born entirely in sins and you are teaching us. So they put him out. Did you catch that? That is the judgment that Jesus is prohibiting. First, they place themselves in a different category than the man. You were born entirely in sins. Some English translations, you were born steeped in sin. In other words, you were born blind. You were a product of God's displeasure. And we are righteous. But even worse, they put him out. It didn't just excuse him from that meeting. It means they excommunicated him from being qualified for temple worship. With no grace, they judged him worthy of hell. 
as those who were on the way to hell themselves. See, the judgment that Jesus is prohibiting is the self-righteous evaluation of another person as being utterly unsavable, unworthy of the grace of God, particularly when compared to righteous me. And Jesus warns, that's precisely the judgment that's coming your way. In the same way you self-righteously look down on others as worthy of the judgment of God, so you shall receive the judgment of God. Just in case you may think that Jesus can't be speaking the final judgment of eternal judgment, look at the broader context, because that tells us otherwise. The theme of judgment is all through chapter 7. In fact, I'll start at the end. Verse 27. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. This is eternal judgment. Great was its fall. Verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is eternal judgment. This is God commanding, depart from me. Verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is eternal judgment, being burned in the fire. Verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. This is eternal judgment. It leads to destruction. Eternal judgment, eternal judgment, eternal judgment, eternal judgment. Verse 2. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. Is this a contradiction of the theme of eternal judgment, which happens four other times in this context? It's highly improbable that this is somehow different. Eternal judgment, five times over. There's a fourth warning they all called the blindness of spirit. The blindness of spirit. Both the log in the eye and the speck in the eye, but particularly the log in the eye, this is a picture of spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness is the very definition of being lost, of being without God. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 reminds us that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Mark 4 records Jesus beginning to preach in parables. His disciples asked him why. And Jesus quoted from Isaiah 6 that he's speaking to spiritually hardened people so that they they see but they don't perceive, so that they hear but they don't understand. In the New Testament, the believer in Christ is never characterized as spiritually blind. Never. The log in the eye is the self-righteousness of the lost person. Once the log is removed, he can see clearly. He can see his own depravity. He can see his own wretchedness. Or, or maybe if we put it this way, the person is looking directly at his own sin. He's looking at the log in his eye. He can't see anything else. And when he looks at the log in his eye, he only sees perfection and righteousness. The log in the eye is the unbeliever's self-righteousness, his unforgiven state. This isn't a joke. This isn't humorous. This is a spiritual emergency on the highest order. A log in the eye. It's warning, it's catastrophe, it's disaster, it's danger, it's calamity, it's ruin, it's devastation, it's cataclysm. This is the highway to hell because you look at the massive quantity of your own self-righteousness and you love it. There's a fifth warning, the label of hypocrite, the label of hypocrite. 
Jesus says in verse 5, you hypocrite. The verb form here is hypocrita. It's what's called a vocative noun, which basically means I'm talking to you. It's direct address. This is from a root word that means to judge. But it came to mean an actor, a pretender, a role player. One highly respected exegetical Greek dictionary defines the word as the godless person. And I want to be very clear here. We want to be precise. Jesus does not say don't act like hypocrites. He says, you hypocrites. This vocative address derived from the basic form hypocrites, where we obviously get the word hypocrites. This noun, this label, is applied to people in the New Testament 17 times. Every time by Jesus. So how does Jesus use this word? We're going to do all 17. We'll do them fast. Matthew 6, 2. Therefore, when you give to the poor, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. Who is that? Unbelievers. Matthew 6, verse 5. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues so that they may be seen by men. Unbelievers. Number 3. Matthew 6, 16. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they'll be noticed by men. Who is that? unbelievers Matthew 15 7 and 8 you hypocrites rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far away from me unbelievers Matthew 22 18 Jesus knowing their wickedness said why are you testing me you hypocrites unbelievers Matthew 23 13 woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites you shut off the kingdom of heaven from yourselves for you do not enter in yourselves unbelievers Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Unbelievers. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and cumin have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. Unbelievers. Matthew 23, 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. Unbelievers, Matthew 23, 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Unbelievers, Matthew 23, 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you build the tombs of the prophets, you adorn the monuments of the righteous. Unbelievers, Matthew 24, 51, The unbeliever will be cut in pieces and assigned a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Unbelievers. Mark 7, 6. He said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. For it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. Unbelievers. Luke 12, 56. You hypocrites. You know how to examine the appearance of the earth and the sky. Why do you not examine this present time? Unbelievers. Luke 13, 14, and 15, the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, answered and was saying to the crowd, there are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath release his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead it away to water? Unbelievers, number 16 is a repeat of Matthew 7, 5 in Luke chapter 6, and Matthew 17 
or, or number 17 rather, is Matthew 7, 5, you hypocrite. A hypocrite is a false believer. Never in Scripture is a hypocrite said to be a Christian. This is not the Christian who may sinfully act hypocritically and in the process of working toward holiness and sanctification and humility, a hypocrite is an actor. He's a fraud. He's a fake. He's a non-regenerate person who's enamored and impressed and delighted and enjoys the log in his own eye. By the way, if that's not convincing to you, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament done in the 3rd and 2nd centuries B.C., the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation uses the basic noun form hypocrites twice in the Old Testament, both in Job, to translate the Hebrew word hanep, which means profane or irreligious. Our English Bibles translates it like this. Job 34.30, so that the godless men will not rule. Job 36.13, but the godless in heart lay up anger. In English, is translated the godless. Five warnings thus far, the shift in tone, the increase of alarm, the type of judgment, the blindness of spirit, the label of hypocrite. The final warning we could call the assessment of hypocrites. The assessment of hypocrites. What do you do with verse 6? Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. How do you deal with this? Well, first of all, it might be helpful to identify his reference to dogs and pigs. When we think of dog, we generally think of Fido and Spot and the family pet that sits by the fireplace. In Jesus' day, the dog wasn't generally a family pet. In fact, almost every use of the word dog in the Bible is a negative one. But a dog in Jesus' day refers to mongrels, to scavengers, to wild dogs that were dangerous. Dogs that were used by families generally had a function, such as shepherding. But a dog is a spiritual insult. And Jesus says, do not give what is holy to dogs. It's a picture of going to the, to the temple and offering a heartfelt, genuine sacrifice to the Lord of, of, a, of a lamb or, or whatever the sacrifice is called for, and that you receive this, a, a piece of meat from this sanctified, holy offering, and then you take it out to the city dump and just throw it to a dog who probably won't appreciate you doing that and, and attack you for it. He says, don't do that. What about the pig? This was the picture to a Jew of spiritual uncleanness. Pigs came in wild varieties, which were actually very dangerous, with tusks that could kill. People had to watch out for them at city dumps or in places where food waste was piled. And you would never try to throw a treasure of, of pearls to pigs that would just as soon tear you apart and have you for lunch. And of course, your mind goes to the fact that in Matthew 13, just a few chapters away, Jesus calls the gospel, he calls the kingdom, the what? The pearl of great price. Now, I want you to picture this. We have to go back to this mountainside where Jesus is preaching, the Sermon on the Mount. He's been preaching to a large crowd, a mixed crowd. He's preaching to many, perhaps even most, who desire to know more about him, perhaps even to follow after him. He's also preaching to his own disciples. He's preaching to the, those few men he's training 
And he's preaching to those mixed in the crowd, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the same ones whom John the Baptist had recently refused to baptize because they wouldn't repent of sin. He has clearly called out the religious fakes. You hypocrites. And like the other 16 times he's recorded as doing so, you hypocrites, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. He's clearly calling them out. And this is what I love. Now, right in front of them, he begins talking like they're not even there. Do not give what is holy to dogs. You can almost see those guys right there. Do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Who are the dogs and the pigs? Well, it's pretty clear. They're the hypocrites. They're the hypocrites. In Philippians 3, 2, Paul warns the church against false believers. He says, beware of the dogs. In 2 Peter 2, verse 22, Paul warns of false believers who turn away from the gospel. He says, a dog returns to its own vomit. In Revelation twenty-two fifteen, John writes of all who were excluded from the kingdom of God. He says, outside are the dogs. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that those who are completely antagonistic to the things of God, they are spiritual dogs, they are spiritual swine. They have no appreciation for that which is holy and righteous and lovely. This is a person who's too rebellious to even listen to the gospel. They have become to us essentially a waste of time. And certainly we're not to be smug or delighted in that state of a person. It's a, it's a cause for grief. It's a cause for disappointment. It's a cause for concern. Because final judgment of God is coming upon that person rapidly unless a great move of the Spirit of God happens. The grace of God is limitless in its capacity to save. But the grace of God is limited in its time frame to save. Hebrews 10, 26 says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Four verses later, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jesus is speaking to a mixed crowd. Did you know that after his resurrection, he never did that again? He never even interacted with the unbelievers. They were the pigs and the swine. They had three and a half years to believe. Now he interacted only with the believers. I've been praying for the effectiveness of our ministry for 2024. It's tempting to preach something pithy or inspiring about New Year's resolutions and so forth. And, but what I've been praying for is the fact that the church is called to live out Colossians 128. That is our call. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Here's a question. Warning them of what? What do we warn? Let me answer that question with another question. Where do you find the dogs? Where do you find the pigs? Where do you find the hypocrites? The false believers who are enamored with the log in their own eye. Later in Matthew 7, Jesus will answer that question, but I'll tell you now where you find the dogs, the pigs, the hypocrites, the false believers. You find them at church. How do we know this? Well, it's right here. Here they were. 
the Pharisees, the scribes, the dogs, the pigs, sitting and listening to Jesus himself preach. And three years later, they're the ones shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Oh, but we take hope from those who used to have a log in their eye. There was once a man with a tremendous log in his eye. He was so self-righteous, he was admired by the Pharisees, by the Jerusalem elite, for his hatred of Christ, his hatred of all who follow Christ. In fact, he thought the log in his eye was beautiful. He thought himself righteous before God because of his hatred for Christ. He admired and cherished and loved the log in his eye. You know who he is, Saul of Tarsus. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul was on the crowded highway to hell, but God gloriously saved him. See, the reality is, it must be God who takes the log out of your eye. It must be the Spirit of God who opens your eyes to see the vastness of your own sin, the vastness of your offense against God. If you came this morning expecting a typical New Year's sermon about how God can help you keep your resolutions. I am sorry to disappoint, but my primary concern, and Matthew 7 will help us work this out in the coming weeks, my primary concern is that this coming year be characterized by perhaps God doing a work at the level of Saul to knock the self-righteous to the ground and extract the log from the eye such that they see Jesus As we hear Paul say gloriously in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I have learned over the years to never assume anything and I never assume that in a a group of people this large in this room and those listening online at any given time, I never assume that you might not be at a crossroads. You see the highway to hell going one way and the narrow little path to heaven going another. You see the log in your own eye, your own self-righteousness. And in this moment, the the fog is sort of clearing away and you're, you're seeing that for a brief moment. You see the disgusting nature of your own sin. But trust me, Moments after our last amen, the the fog will roll back in and the beauty of the log in your eye will assert itself once more. The log in your eye beginning to look glorious again. And all I can say is, take the exit, take the off-ramp, get off the highway. Get off the highway to hell. Instead, get on the little narrow path, the gate of the gospel of Christ. Repent of loving the log in your eye. Let this be the day that you say, I ended this year with a log in my eye, but I begin the year seeing Christ. I'm not appealing to your emotions because your emotions love the log in your eye. I don't appeal to God giving you a pain-free life because removing the log is painful. It means rejecting everything you thought was good about yourself. I don't appeal to saying that the road of salvation is easy. Jesus says it's hard. 
that all who love Christ will suffer and even be persecuted for loving Christ. I do appeal to this, though. The log in your eye is so massive because it represents the vast quantity and the lifestyle of offending a holy God since the very day you could choose right from wrong. The log in your eye is the debt of sin you owe to God. It is massive. It is unpayable. But Colossians 2.13 says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt, lifting away the log that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There's only one person strong enough to lift that massive log of your sin and cast it away. Only the Lord Jesus Christ has that strength. Only he has that power. He says, remove the log from your own eye. The only way to do that is to ask him to do it. Let's bow together in prayer for a moment. And as you're reflecting on what you've heard, there may be one or two or five of you that in this moment, the fog has cleared and you're seeing that there's a log in your own eye. And I would just say once again that this is, this is the moment to see self-righteousness for what it is. It is that highway to hell. And in this moment of reflection, May the Spirit of God be working. Our Father, we come to you now so, so thankful for the gospel. It was your grace that opened our eyes to see. It was your grace that removed the self-righteousness and and showed us the disgusting, horrific nature of our own sin. We didn't even know there was a log in our own eye until you plucked it out. By grace we have been saved and this this is by faith alone. And so Lord, we pray in this moment that perhaps one or two might end 2023 by coming to faith in Christ. Lord, I think in particular of young people, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old who may think themselves righteous because they have Christian parents or because they go to church or Maybe even they like sermons but have begun to grow the log in their own eye exponentially by loving their own self-righteousness. I pray for them. I think especially, Lord, of those who have perhaps been in church for decades and have been so enamored by their own self-righteousness that they don't even see it anymore. Oh, Lord, your spirit is powerful enough to knock them down and remove that log. Lord Jesus, what a master you are, how you preached to the mixed crowd. You exhorted and comforted the saved and you warned with all possible urgency the lost. I pray that through your words you would do the same even now. And Holy Spirit, we ask you in this coming year to move mightily in our midst 
that not only would you identify the logs in the eyes of those that perhaps are regular church attenders, but that all of us who are members of the body of Christ would seek to proclaim this gospel of hope to those in our sphere of influence, that we would see many come to faith, that we would have a great bonfire of the logs of self-righteousness and see them burned away by the glorious grace of Christ at the cross. For those of us who know you, we can only say thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for showing us our our self-righteousness and pointing our eyes heavenward to Christ. May this coming year be a year in which we live out our faith, delighted in our dear Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.